Well, it's important to, to note how and why port came to be. Uh, to understand that, we must take a look at the history of the country responsible for its development, and that, of course, would be England. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. Port, the sweet, fortified, generally enjoyed after-dinner wine, is gaining popularity among even the most novice of wine aficionados. And Zach Mazur, a port wine specialist with Co-Brand, is here to explain and entertain in this educational hour. Welcome again to the Wednesday webinar. This is our fifth session with a focus on wine. And today we have Zach Mazur, who is the port specialist for Co-Brand, my company, Co-Brand Wine and Spirits, for the Southeast U.S. And he represents our port brands, Croft, Fonseca, and Taylor Flagate. And he's going to take you through what I think is often a very misunderstood category, but um, these wines are fantastic and there's such a wide range. And so he's going to give you a little taste of that today. So with that, Zach, just uh, I'll let you take it from there. And if anyone has any questions, I'll be monitoring the chat box and we'll give you the password at the end of the session. All right. All right. Thanks again for coming out and hopefully I can teach you guys a lot about port today. So without further ado, let's let's get it started. Well, it's important to note how and why port came to be. Uh, to understand that, we must take a look at the history of the country responsible for its development, and that, of course, would be England. The English fancied French wine for the longest time, especially their Bordeaux, <clears throat> but the supply of it was cut off when they were finally expelled from France toward the end of the Hundred Years' War. That was in uh, 1453 here, and it was during this war that the British traders had to turn to their ally to the south, the Portuguese, um, for their wine. So starting a little bit during that Hundred Years' War, actually towards the beginning, merchants from uh, Lisbon and Porto, actually, cities in, in Portugal, made an alliance with the King of England. That was in 1353, allowing the Portuguese to fish cod off of British shores in return for regular shipments of wine from Portugal. In time, the British wool merchants started trading cloth and corn for wine and olive oil, beginning one of the longest standing trade agreements in modern history. The wine at this time, though, was still um, table wine, not port as we know it today. Um, go a little bit further forward to 1662, and the English-Portuguese connection was further strengthened by the marriage of Charles II to Catherine of Braganza, which also helped to reinforce Portugal's sovereignty from Spain. So they have an important ally now um, in Portugal, and they have somewhere to get their they have somewhere to get their wine from. But the problem is the wine at this time was still not very good. It was more of a thin, watery, uh, think of like a, a Vino Verde type wine, and that did not tra hold up well to the travel between England and Portugal. So now about the late 1600s, early 1700s, when things started to change. This was when it was around this time that British traders started establishing their own operations in Portugal. 
so they can control and improve the quality of the wine they're getting from there. And two of the porthouses that that I represent or we represent here at Cobran were actually established in this era uh, that were British families. That was Taylor Flagate in 1692 and Croft um, even before that in 1588. So the, seven, the 1703 Treaty of Methulin granted far lower duties on Portuguese wines than those being imported from other countries. And this was in response to the to the British discovering port as we know it today, a strong, sweet and fortified uh, wine with brandy, a grape spirit added to it, which helped it stand up to those rigors of, of sea travel. More on this process later. It's very important. Uh, but what is important to note here is that this is really the time when port started to take off uh, with the insatiable sweet tooth of the British demanding as much of it as they can get. But with any profitable and booming business, eventually there will be those trying to du duplicate the original and pass it off as as port from Portugal. And this led to a call for regulation of where the grapes can be grown. And uh, in 1756, it was the Douro Valley in Portugal uh, that became that was demarcated as the uh, first demarcated wine region in the world. So. The British really needed this to make sure that the quality of their wine coming in was uh, was always up to par. So they they're able to get this. The Douro Valley figured out the place where it should the only place where it should be coming from. All right. So that's that's the history part I have for you. Um, but the most important thing to note from the history was that the port trade was built by the British for the British. And that's why at least half of the big port houses, if not more, um, still have a, a British name uh, to this day, such as Taylor and Croft. Um, but what is port? So port is a sweet and fortified wine. And you can actually you can actually make port anywhere and call it that, at least in the US. Um, but true Porto with the O there can only be can only be uh, made in Portugal. Uh, and in the EU, they actually don't allow any port outside of Portugal to be called port or Porto. Uh, in the United States, though, we do have some domestically made ports, whether it's from California or New York, that are able to be called port. But the uh, the Porto shippers out of Portugal are actually working on getting that copyrighted, so they're not able to use it. It's the same thing with some brands. Some sparkling wines can still call themselves champagne. Uh, things like that in the U.S. Um, port has to be true. Porto has to be made from traditional Portuguese grapes, indigenous Portuguese grape varietals, and produced in Portugal's Douro Valley. All right, so here we have the Iberian Peninsula, the flag of Portugal, and then here kind of gives you an idea, circled up here of of the Douro River Valley. So it runs from it runs from through Spain into Portugal and then the mouth of it is at the this coastal city of Porto. That is the center of business and trade for for port. And the Douro Valley is between there and the and the border border with Spain. 
All right, so here is a picture of overlooking the port lodges. On the far side of the river, that's actually the city of Porto. And then the river, of course, that's the Douro River. And then on our side of the river is actually the sister city of Villanova de Gaia. And down there along the banks of the river is where a lot of the port lodges are. And then even up a couple blocks, that's where Taylor's Port Lodge is right, right on the river. I think this picture is, looks like it was taken from, I believe it's taken from the Yateman Hotel. That's a hotel that's actually owned by the Taylor Flaggate Partnership. You can see their their pool down here, and um, this is where this is where the port is aged, in the city of uh, Villanova de Gaia. All right, so another look at the Douro Valley as a wine region here in red. It is not the largest wine growing region in Portugal, but it's definitely the most famous and renowned. Here's a beautiful picture of the Douro Valley. Very steep slopes. Uh, you have to use terraced, terraced, terraced farming techniques to even be able to grow vines there. All right, so what is the climate like there? So the climate in the coastal city of Porto, right on the Atlantic, they have a, a cool, moderate maritime climate. So think kind of like a Seattle, Washington. But the climate in the, the Douro Valley, just east of there, on the, on the other side of the Serra do, do Morau Mountains, is actually a, a lot different. They're in more of a rain shadow, and they have a, they have a continental climate. So it can be, it's very hot and dry in the summer, and it can be, and they, they definitely reach freezing temperatures very often. It snows there in the winter, and they have a more moderate spring and fall. And then the further east you get out into the valley, uh, up the Douro River, uh, the drier it gets. And also the more extreme the temperature swings are because they don't have that moderating influence of the Atlantic Ocean uh, to keep the temperature moderate. <clears throat> and that's part of the reason why, part of the reason why they age the port in the, the city of Porto is because it's a, a very slow, gentle aging process and the, um, the cool, humid, uh, the cool, humid area there as compared to the, the hot, dry uh, continental Douro. So in terms of soil, you only have to remember one thing, it's schist. That is the primary, that's the really the only soil that's found there in the Douro Valley uh, for growing quality grape vines. And um, it's important because it retains water very well, even in the driest months of the summer. And it cracks easily, allowing the vines to dig down really deep up to maybe more even than uh, up to 15 feet to find water reserves um, in, the, in the driest months so that the vines don't completely shut down. So it's very difficult to it's very difficult to uh, to build. Actually, dynamite's required to 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 carve out new uh, terraces in the land. Okay, so here's the grapes. Uh, there's there's a lot more per permitted varieties of this, but they all have to be indigenous uh, red Portuguese grapes for making port. Uh, but these are the main five or six. Uh, Triga Franca, you might have heard of. That's going to be Triga Franca and Triga Nacional are probably going to be the. That's like the 
the cabin what cabin merlot is to bordeaux that is the the main grapes for for making port wine but also tinto ruiz is very is very important that's the same grape as tempranillo that's just called tinto ruiz in portugal and then tinta barroca tinta amarela and tinta cow are the they're marked as the highest quality and usually making up the highest proportion of the blend um so there's the grapes harvest so like we saw earlier in the picture they're incredibly steep slopes that only permit hand harvesting uh, no large tractor equipment um, is able to get on these small terraces. Um, some bulk production and other wineries uh, may use larger bins to collect their grapes, but at the Teller Flagate Partnership, um, the brands we represent, they only use these very small bins uh, to keep the to keep the grapes intact, so they're not crushed before getting to the uh, to the winemaking facility. So port production starts out starts out really similar to to the way most red wines are made, crush, ferment, press. Um, but the big difference here is that it's a very rapid and intense fermentation process. Um, it's only about forty eight hours, and at that point, it is cut short um, when about half the sugar has been converted into alcohol. And the way that they arrest the fermentation is by adding 77% uh, alcohol, pure grape spirit. They call it aguardente. It's a, it's a brandy. And that kills the yeast, stopping the fermentation early and preserving uh, the, sh the natural grape sugars in the wine. They also put enough in there to fortify the product up to 20% alcohol. So the wine is then... Um, transported by truck to Villanova de Gaia, where it is um, where it is put in barrels for for aging and further blending, and then eventually bottled. Uh, back before they had tanker trucks, they would actually take uh, they would they would take the port by by boat by sailboat down the Dora River. And at the time too, before the river was dammed up, it was a very dangerous journey because there's a lot of rapids. Uh, but people needed their port, so they figured out a way to, way to get it done. So here's the, the different methods of fermentation that are used in production of port wines today. Uh, the first three, auto fermenters, pump over fermenters, uh, rotary fermenters, are more commonly used with, with bulk production, just your standard Ruby Tawny, uh, maybe your Ruby Reserve as well. Um, those types of those types of ports, uh, and the last two, the mechanized piston tanks, or what we call an adoption of this would be port toes. Get a little bit more into this later, um, and then actual foot treading, the traditional method in stone lagars. Um, these are reserved for only the highest quality ports. Your, you know, 10, 20, 30 year, and your classic vintages. Um, and actually, David Gimeron, the winemaker at the Taylor, Taylor Flaggate Partnership, had a hand in in developing the the port toes, which are actually rubber feet that are attached to these piston tanks to almost 99% uh, 
um, accurately replicate the the foot treading that a human can do. Um, he is, he had part of that invention. So, but all of them, the idea here with with all of these is that they need to extract as much color, tan, and flavor as possible as quickly as possible before too much sugar has fermented and, and the wine becomes too dry to make port. So here we're all talking about rapid extraction methods. Um, like I was saying, the traditional method, as you can see up top, foot treading, reserved for premium and vintage port, all of the, all of the classic vintage LBV and uh, age tawnies at the Taylor Flaggate partnership are still foot treaded. Uh, and that is the Stone Lagar. It's a shallow, probably two, it's about two feet deep, two to three feet deep uh, tub that that enables this foot treading to be to be done. And then on the bottom here, it's the the piston fermenters. Not a picture of the Portos. This is a little bit of a larger one, but it, it duplicates this process still pretty, pretty accurately. Okay, so here's a little bit of a better picture close up of foot treading. Um, and this is what the first round of looks like. It's very militaristic and controlled. And the reason it needs to be like that, and usually they have the younger, kind of like the younger, stronger um, people come in here is because it's actually it's hard to to break the grapes when they're still uh, when they're still whole. So it takes it really takes some work and they got to they got to sit there for a couple hours and almost march in place and hold on to each other um, because they have to put all their weight on one foot and then the other foot uh, to be able to to be able to get these grapes uh, crushed, primarily crushed. But after that, after that, to uh, to do the rest of the crushing and and to start this fermentation, uh, everyone joins in and they have a really good time with it. There's dancing and, and singing involved, and uh, it's a really long day because most of these people were out were out harvesting the grapes from from sunrise to sunset, and then you know, they get some dinner, come in here, and uh, and have to crush the grapes for another couple hours. So it's very hard work, um, but they they get to enjoy it uh, with this with this next stage of the foot treading. All right, so this. This is probably one of the most important slides, and this is this is a, one of the hardest things for for people to understand about port. How do they fortify it? What happens, and when? So fermentation is stopped at a halfway point by adding a clear, neutral grape spirit, aguardente, like I was saying. And and what we use at the Taylor Flaggate Partnership, at least, is we use high quality eau de vie, so a young, a young uh, cognac. And, and what they do here is you're fermenting about half the sugar in the grapes <clears throat> to alcohol. So at that point you have a 7% alcohol, very sweet wine. And when they, when they know they're at 7% alcohol or so, they're gonna add the grape spirit which kills the yeast, stops the fermentation, and fortifies the wine to 20% alcohol while preserving the natural grape sugars. The difference between this and say a regular dry red or white wine is that uh, say like a Chardonnay or a Cabernet, you're taking about say 99% of the sugars in a Chardonnay or Cabernet grapes, and you're converting that 
the yeast converts that to alcohol and you're left with a 14% alcohol dry still wine. Um, with port on the other hand, same type of grapes that you're starting out with as say like a Cabernet or a Zinfandel, same type of sugar levels, maybe a little bit higher, um, but you're only fermenting half of them into alcohol. And that's where all the sweetness in, in port comes from. So all the sweetness in port is natural. The only thing being added here is a high quality grape spirit. So how is this regula regulated? The Instituto dos Vinos do Porto di Dudoro y Porto, the IVDP, controls the release of ports to the market. So what does that mean? I think the most important thing that they do is when a when a port shipper decides to decides to bottle and release a 10, 20, 30 year, 40 year tawny. The laws aren't very strict. That's an average age, but it can be a little bit less or a little bit more. But this the IVDP board, what they do is they taste this, they analyze this um, and they make sure that it is suitable to have that age statement on it but before allowing it to uh to go to market uh they they also they're also a little bit involved with making sure the port is high enough quality to be bottled as a vintage uh, but that's a little bit more of the the port shippers discretion they won't submit something that's not going to be good enough to be to pass the iv uh, dp so the most important thing they do really is approving those those aged tawnies. Um, also, the the Casa do Douro regulates vineyards and Porto production in the Douro Valley. So vineyard classification in the Douro, uh, the Beneficio system. What is important to know here about this is that is how the vineyards in the Douro Valley are rated for quality and production pur purposes. So whereas in, in Burgundy, France, you may have village level vineyards, grand and premier crew vineyards. Here in the Douro Valley, they use the Beneficio system, which grades the vineyards from A to F based on both natural and man-made factors, with the A having the highest rating and being allowed to produce the largest amount of uh, yield uh, per or the, the largest amount of vines per per area and the largest yields per per vineyard and F having the least. So that's that's what you need to remember about the Beneficio system. A to F, A is the top vineyards, F are the um, the least, the lowest rated vineyards. Uh, in the bottom right here is a picture of the beautiful uh, Quinta de Vargelis. That's Taylor Flagate's top vineyard way out in the east end of the Douro Valley in the Douro Superiore. So like I was saying, uh, the Douro Superiore on the east end, the right side, this is a zoomed in uh, map of the, of the Douro Valley. If you were to look off the screen to your left, out to the west, uh, the Douro River empties into the coastal city of Porto. And as you go up the river, moving from left to right, you enter into the Baicho Corgo. 
So this is the coolest. This is the coolest area, and it receives the most amount of rain. Most of the most of the the port that's produced here is going to be lower in quality, usually used more for cooking. Let me go back here. Um, City of Lamego, that's where actually the strong, sweet, fortified port was first discovered um, by a monk. Um, a monk there had a sweet tooth, and he would he uh, some British some British explorers were the first to find that uh, modern type of port there, and that's how they figured out to that you had to fortify it to keep it that way. Um, and then here in the center, Pinyao is really the the center city in the Chima right in the middle of the Chima Corgo. That's where a lot of the top vineyards are located and where the vast majority of the production comes from around Pinyao. Um, but then there's also some really high quality. Uh, some of the best quality are actually in the Doro Superiore off out here to the east. Okay, so I told you that that fortification slide was the most important. This is probably just as important or at worst second. This is the, the different types of port. So they all start the same way, but it's the size of the barrel or cast that they're aging that determines the style. So really it's two main categories, ruby and tawny, but vintage is a completely different thing. Even though it's a, even though it's a ruby, it's made in a different way. Um, so we're gonna break it down into three types here, but remember vintage is a ruby. So rubies are gonna be aged in very large casks. We're talking 65,000 liters plus, and they're gonna be ruby red to a deep purple in color, a lot more fruit forward on the nose and palate. Tawny ports start the same way, but they go into small oak barrels. We're talking 600 liters and they oxidize and become more brown and they they take on a, an increasingly oaky and nutty flavor and aroma uh, the longer that they age in there. So 10, 20, 30 years. Vintage ports start out the same as your ruby ports, but instead of being bottled after they finish oak aging or instead of, yeah, instead of being bought or instead of being released right after they finish oak aging, they need time to age in the bottle, just like a fine burgundy or fine Bordeaux. All the oak that these ports are aging is neutral. They've been they've been used for for the aging of other types of of wine or spirits, um, and then they're seasoned with some low quality port uh, to make sure there's no other flavors. And then these types of port go in go in them. But the main the main reason for the, the oak aging is to allow a controlled amount of oxygen to reach the to reach the port. So with with the rubies, it's very little amount is able to reach the is able to reach the port. So they retain their color, flavor and and fruit. And then with the with the tawny's very small oak barrel, a lot more of the wine is in contact with the surface area of the oak. So a lot more oxygen is able to interact with the port um, and oxidize it, becoming more um, nutty and getting more of a like a caramel flavor. All right, so here's another here's a look at what these big casts for the Ruby ports look like. Uh, they can be they can be up to 200,000 liters plus in some cases, uh, but the most important thing is that they're very large, so not much oxygen exposure. 
And then on the bottom right here, this is small barrels. This is what your tawny ports are going to age in, are going to be aged in. So a lot more of the, a lot more of the wine is in contact with with oxygen. So your tawnies at the, you you do have uh, what's called um, fine tawny that's just aged two to four years. You have tawny reserve, which need a minimum six years in barrel. Uh, but the most popular types are going to be what's called your age indicated tawnies. That's 10, 20, 30, and 40 years. Um, and there's also, and that's an app, they're going to spend an average of that amount of time in oak cast. So part of the blend might be a little bit younger, part of the blend's about 10 years, part of the blend is, is a little bit older. Um, there is vintage dated tawnies called Colleta, and that's going to be tawnies from a single harvest. Uh, Needs to, they need to spend, they need to be at least seven years old to be released. But the only one that we produce at Taylor Flaggate is a 50 year. So right now, the current release we have is a 1970. Uh, all the grapes were actually from 1970, and it's spent 50 years in barrel, um, aging in barrel before release. And then it was bottled ready to drink in 2020. So that's what a Coyote is. Ruby port, you do have fine ruby that's just aged a year or two. In large oak vat and then you have ruby reserve uh, which is a little bit higher quality aged usually two to three years um, late bottled vintage aged four to six years in large oak vat and then bottled ready to drink both of those vintage only in declared years which is about three times per decade they have the right weather conditions uh, to produce their best vintage ports um, those are bottled just for two, I mean, those are, they spend just two winters in, um, large oak vat, and then they are, and then when they're declared, they're bottled and they, with a real cork and they spend, um, they have to spend usually 10 plus years aging to, uh, to reach maturity. Same thing with single quintas. They're not, they're made in the good years, not the best years. And they're usually from a, uh, a single vineyard. So getting diving into it a little bit more, uh, the ruby ports, like I was saying, ruby red to deep purple in color, a lot more fruit forward on the nose and palate, Asian large oak casks, your vintage single quinta, crusted LBV reserve all fall under that category. Tawny, with that oak aging, they become uh, more round and mellow with age. I say that they can even get these like a vanilla or almond extract type flavor and power when you get to that 30 year plus. Um, the younger ones, a little more caramel, raisin, um, and nutty nuances. These are all Asian, this, again, Asian small oak barrels of around 600 liters. You have your 10, 20, 30, 40 year age tawnies, and then single harvest tawnies uh, from, a, from a single vintage year. Those are called uh, colletas in Portuguese. So vintage port. So at this is the top of the top, top of the pyramid, um, the highest quality, and it establishes the house reputation and style. Taylor Flaggate, we have been, uh, we have some examples here of Taylor Flaggate's classic vintages. Um, they're known as being the finest producer of classic vintage port, the, the, only the highest quality. Um, it's two percent of the total production, and the declaration is an individual house decision. So Taylor decides whether they want to 
declare a classic vintage. And this happens about about three times per decade. And um, it's up to them whether they're going to bottle one or not. And this decision, like I said, it's say for the most recent declaration was 2019. So that's when the grapes are harvested, uh, vinified, fortified, and then they, they go into barrel for two winters. And then actually the decision day comes on St. George's Day. So they we just did this two or three weeks ago in April. Uh, Taylor didn't decide to declare the 2019 um, as a classic vintage, but they did bottle a a single quinta. So they and they did bottle a 2019 Taylor Vargelis single quinta. Um, and they, so they put that into bottle under under cork. And um, they're actually deciding they're going to hold that for 10 years before release so that it's ready to drink upon release. So non-classic vintage ports, these are usually going to be um, frequently single quinta ports, uh, but sometimes they can be a blend of single quintas, such as Fonseca's Gimmerons port. That's a blend of Fonseca's top couple quintas. Croft um, makes a Rueda that's always just from their top vineyard Rueda. And then Taylor Flagate makes uh, Vargelis from their top Quinta. Uh, the It's the Portuguese word for farm. So that's from their, their single their single vineyards. And these age under real cork in the bottle as well. OK, so late bottle vintage port. This can get a little bit confusing. This is a Ruby Reserve style of port. Introduced by Taylor Flagate in 1970, so we just with the the 1965 being their their first vintage because it spent five years aging in barrel before release. Um, single harvest wood aged port. So what that means is they're trying to replicate the style of a young vintage port that's spent several years aging in cork in the bottle by aging it in instead in oak for for several years. So these are very high quality ports in a non vintage declared years. It's actually the best quality that that we're producing goes into these, um, but they're very affordable and they're they're bottled ready to drink. You don't have to wait for them to develop under cork in the bottle. So reserve ports, this is the one step above your basic rubies is is, is your reserves and these are a non vintage blend, so think you have a brute champagne that's non-vintage is a blend of a couple different vintages and that also reflects the house style it's the same thing here with your ruby reserves um, produced to maintain a different uh, a consistent style year over year um, fonseca bin 27 croft distinction are some examples um, graham's six grapes sandeman's founders reserves those are all examples of reserve ports, usually aged two to four years, large oak, large oak, uh, large oak vat, and then they're bottled ready to drink. So tawny ports, rich, smooth, nutty, um, caramel flavors, normally, normally produced uh, an average of 10, 20, 30 years. We already went over what a Coliete is. Um, Taylor 20 year is probably, well, is actually the number one selling 
uh, Tony Port in the US. It's very popular here. Fonseca makes a really great one as well. So serving and storing ports, uh, especially here in Florida, when it's summer pretty much year round, um, it's, it's really nice to have port lightly chilled. So I'd say around 60, 62 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit is, is where you want to have these. So kind of how you'd store your light bodied red wines like Pinot Noir, that's going to be the perfect serving temperature for ports. Um, much older vintage ports that have been aged under cork for a long time, those only last for a day after opening because as soon as they get decanted, um, the when without being exposed to oxygen for so long, once that they start interacting with that oxygen, they're going to go, they're going to go flat really quick, just like an old, uh, an old Burgundy or Bordeaux still wine. But the rest, and but a young vintage port should last a few days. Anything that has less than 10, 10, 15 years on it should last a few days after opening. Um, but all the other types of ports, all your Ruby reserves, fine Ruby, fine Tawny, LBV, um, they're going to last for a month or two at peak freshness after opening. All right, port pairings. So of course, all wine pairs well with cheese, um, but port in particular does really well. And then I would say the best pairings for ruby port, which is gonna be more sweet, uh, and more fruit forward on the nose and palate, it's gonna go really well with, with things that have fruits in them. And then I like to pair it with dark chocolate also. And then tawny ports, which are more oaky, nutty, has that caramel, uh, flavor. Um, those are going to go really well with your uh, creme brulee, anything with the burnt sugars, uh, flan, nuts, things like that. So the pairings are really endless and any dessert can be properly paired with with a port or anything that you'd put on a charcuterie board, even as an aperitif can go really well with a port also. So port also has some great um port can also be used in mixology because you have a really you have a really high quality product uh that let me go back here so the port in mixology you have a really high quality product that's going to be um that you can add flavor, color, and complexity to a lot of different beverages. If you're interested in that at www.portcocktails.com, that can um, um, that'll that has a lot of the great cocktail recipes that were made by the, the Taylor Flaggate Partnership. Portcocktails.com. And um, that is what I have for you. Awesome. Uh, you'll leave that slide up just for a minute so that everyone can get the link and the link is also in the chat box and I've just posted the password in the chat box. It is Ruby with a capital R. Ruby, R-U-B-Y with a capital R. Um, 
Thank you, Zach. That was fantastic. A lot of information, um, good detail, and uh, I hope everyone has a better understanding of the different categories and styles of port. Um, I am a big fan of port cocktails. I think that port is a tremendous mixing ingredient in cocktails, and I know that so many people are uh, enjoying lower alcohol beverage cocktails these days and using wine as an ingredient as opposed to other higher proof spirits uh, achieves that. So um, I think it's great. Does anybody have any questions for Zach? You can unmute yourself or write in the chat box either one. Uh, I don't. I guess we are pretty thorough there. That was a pretty thorough uh, presentation of port a lot of information to retain, but I'm sure everyone will get a copy uh, to look over. And, um, you know, after after sitting through this, everyone's a port expert. <laughs> That's right. And we know that port is important. Get it? <laughs> we use that at Cobrand all the time. Um, Zach, uh, much like the other presenters that you have seen over the last uh, month or two, is available to do events at your clubs for your members or for your club staff. Um, and he can help you in your studies for those of you that are studying for some exams, um, as well as myself and Steve Millikman and Rochelle, who's on the call today as well. So once again, thank you all very much for your time and your attention. And I hope you're enjoying these. We have one left to go next week. We'll be talking about California. And um, if there's something that you'd like to see in the future, we might be able to talk to Beth and get on your schedule again for the future. So be sure to share your thoughts and your input. If there's anything we can do to improve, uh, share that with her as well. We'd love to hear your feedback. And thank you all once again. Again, the, the password is Ruby with a capital R. R-U-B-Y, Ruby, like Ruby port. All right, thanks everybody. Have a good one. Thank you.